Hi, this is Lily DeHoya Sanderson, and you're listening to Choosing Glory. Thank you for joining me this week. We're talking about First and Second Thessalonians. We're just going to hit a few of the high spots, as I've been trying to do lately. A deeper look at these I hope you'll have time for during the week as you study the Come Follow Me curriculum. And of course, you can always send in questions to Patreon if you're a Patreon subscriber at the VIP level so that we can deal with some of those a little bit more in depth. However, I am going to work in some questions over the next several weeks of the podcast that I got from a group of women that I was speaking to a couple of weekends ago. It was a presentation that gave me some time in the morning, and then the sisters were invited to submit questions that we were going to address in the afternoon. We didn't have as much time as we thought in the afternoon, and some of these questions you know, took a little bit more than just a few quick responses to get into. So I promised to take those questions with me when I returned to the podcast and work them in. So I'm going to do that. I'm not always able to do that when I speak, of course, but there are other ways to submit questions. So I hope you'll feel there's some benefit to sharing some of these questions in this setting. In fact, I'm going to start with one right now. I will be working others in as they kind of go with their curriculum or sometimes at the end of the podcast, but I'm going to start with one today. This question said, might seem silly, but I came from a large family. I always dreamed of having a lot of kids, but due to some things, we might be done at three or four. I feel I have to rationalize only having three. How can I make peace with it? Am I choosing an easier way out to have fewer kids? Boy, this is kind of where the rubber hits the road for some questions, doesn't it? And certainly having, you know, the number of children we have is such a personal decision, but can have eternal ramifications, of course. But let's look at this. I think that our prophets are really clear on the fact that the only people who should be players in this decision as to how many kids we have is the husband, the wife, and God. Hopefully we include God. Of course, not everybody can have a large family. When we have a preconceived notion about some of these things, our expectations are set at a certain place, and then life can surprise us with challenges or other concerns that come that might affect the number of children we have. So I'm not trying to tell anybody that they should have certain number of children. And I hope that nobody else in your life is trying to tell you, you have to have a certain number of children to be acceptable to God. I do want to say that I think we can trust God and we need to trust God. We need to trust that if he really wants something different from us, that he will let us know as long as our heart is set on him. Meaning, If the Lord knows that we are willing to do it his way, he's not going to let us just make a serious mistake. Now, we have to be sincere about that. It can't just be window dressing that, you know, oh, yes, I want to do the Lord's will, but I really want to do my own will. (laughs) That doesn't work. But if our will is truly set on God and we want to please him, we want to do what is right, then he will guide us. I don't believe he's going to just look at us in our confusion sometimes over difficult decisions, more complex decisions, and say, you're on your own. Or I know you wanted to do the right thing, but you didn't get the memo, so off the cliff with the rest of the lemmings. I don't believe he's going to do that, because 
All he asks for is our heart and a willing mind. Or as we have heard some of the prophets and apostles do it, Neil Maxwell used to talk about this, but others as well, that the only real gift we have to give God is our agency, because that was given to us, no strings attached. So if he gave us our agency and we give it back and we are honestly, in the sincerity of our hearts, in a genuine and authentic way, wanting his will in our lives, he'll let us know what that is. And he doesn't pull his punches when it comes to that, if you'll forgive the turn of phrase. I know there are times in my life where I was pursuing something that was a righteous desire, but it was an idea that came up that I thought this would be good for me or for my family or all of us. And I would pursue it and I would hit roadblocks or things just wouldn't work out. And it was confusing at first because I was prayerful about the whole thing. And there wasn't anything evil in the desire, but it just wasn't working. I felt like I was hitting a brick wall again and again. And then when I started asking different questions in my prayers as to like, why hasn't this worked out? Or what is it that you would desire from me? I found that the way opened up in another direction. Or when I turned into another direction, then the way opened up. And I'm so grateful for that. It was a really important lesson, I think, for me to learn that the Lord wouldn't let me pursue a direction that was not evil. Like I said, there was nothing evil or unrighteous about the direction I was trying to go. It just wasn't his will. So he set up those brick walls. And it wasn't super pleasant to hit them, I'll admit, but it was so much preferable to having been left unto myself. I think, again, the point is that if we invite God into our lives, he accepts the invitation. Again, it has to be sincere. It has to be with an honest heart. But if we have that, he knows it. And he's not willing to let his honest in heart children who are willing to give him their agency. You think he really can spare a couple of those because there are so many? No. So I suspect in this question about how many children or that you might be down at three or four, I don't think you have to rationalize only having three. And there's no requirement, there's no set metric on this about how you have to have this many children to be a good person. There are way too many variables. I suspect that health is one of them here, whatever element of health is involved. But when you have people telling you that they're concerned about the viability of having more children, I think that should be a big player in the decision. I know that, again, we can approach God prayerfully and hopefully as a couple in order to seek his will and then trust him. I've said this before about guilt, but I'm going to say it again. This is a Boyd K. Packer quote, that guilt must be reserved for sin. Sin is rebellion. It's when I know the will of the Lord and I don't care. And that I hope I always feel guilty for when I fall into that kind of ridiculous behavior. I hope I feel a lot of guilt quickly so that I can repent. That's the use of guilt. But if it's guilt over, like I thought my life would be this way, and it's different, not useful. I thought after having received a testimony of motherhood, which I didn't have earlier in high school, but then I did, and I've talked about that a little bit before, I thought that I would be a full-time mom and go from full-time motherhood to grandmotherhood. Well, the Lord had a different plan for me, and I could have felt guilt over leaving my home to go back to school when I got that revelation, but what would have been the point? 
if this is what God wanted, I knew it would work out better than my own plans would have worked out. So I was grateful that his hand was in my life and he had a direction in mind for me, a customized curriculum that was very different from what I thought my life would be. And that's okay. That's okay. I think that it's so important to be flexible in what we think our life will be because it almost never is what we thought it would be. I don't believe Joseph Smith had any idea what his life would be like. I don't think any of the prophets did or any of the other heroes, male and female, throughout the history of life and the history of the world have had. Who thinks they're going to be a prophet or a prophetess? Who thinks they're going to be a war hero or an everyday hero? We don't know. We see through a glass darkly. But the Lord, if we give him our will, will take us by the hand and lead us and guide us and direct us. No guilt, gratitude, and confidence that if I have given myself to the Lord, he will give himself to me in my life's journey. Now, I've just chosen a couple of messages from the Thessalonians, but let's touch base on them and then go back and maybe add more a little bit later. But in chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians, let's look at verses 4 and 5. But as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God, which trieth our hearts. We've talked a little bit about this before. He is not going to say the words that please people, but he's going to say the words that please God. He is talking again about the charge that he has received to go and preach the gospel. We all have that charge, don't we? Every member of missionary, we all have the charge to try to let our light shine and to serve in various ways in the kingdom and in our communities and certainly in our families. And are we speaking the words that God would have us speak or are we trying to please people? Verse 5, for neither at any time used we flattering words. Now that's a pretty cool statement that Paul makes that he can say with confidence that they do not use flattering words when they're talking to people. As ye know, (laughs) well, and you know, anybody who was listening to Paul or has read his epistles knows that he says it the way it is. Nor a cloak of covetousness, God is witness. And then again, just briefly at the top of verse 6, not of men sought we glory, neither of you, nor yet of others. So then he said some nice things about how we were gentle and we were affectionate and willing to impart this to you, not just the gospel of God only, this is verse 8, but also our own souls because ye were dear to us. So they've done this out of love, but they're not going to speak flattering words. That's super, super significant to me because we are surrounded in the world by flattering words. And now that we have social media and the internet and such quick ability to access information and communication, wow, we're inundated with flattering words. People who want to send messages of sophistry. So we're talking about sophistry here. Flattering words are a kind of sophistry that are unsound or misleading, but plausible, clever, and subtle reasoning or argument. Things that can sound positive and good. That must be a good message. It's a feel-good message. And yet, what is the end 
of that statement? Or what does it lead to? Or what is it connected to? How does it fit into the whole pantheon of gospel truth? So we're going to come back to this because there's a lot to say about flattering words. But we're clearly seeing that Paul is distinguishing between the love that he and his missionary companions have for the people they teach being distinct and different from flattering words. So let me just say this quickly, that if we're hearing messages that just, you know, feel very comfortable to us and make us feel like we're already finished, (laughs) we should examine them carefully for sophistry. Okay, looking at chapter 4, let's jump ahead to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and this would be verses 3 and 4. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification. And then interestingly connected with this, that you should abstain from fornication. Now, I don't think it's by chance that Paul is connecting sanctification or contrasting it with fornication. It's not only fornication which can stand in the way of are becoming sanctified. But that is one of Satan's most used weapons, is to go after the law of chastity on so many different levels. Let's talk about that in a moment. But first, let's talk about sanctification again. We've discussed this in episodes past. Just want to mention again that sanctification is not just the idea that I receive the Holy Ghost when I am confirmed a member of the church after baptism, sanctification is a process of purification. It is the fulfillment, the ultimate fulfillment of receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost, not just receiving the right to it, which does happen when we are confirmed members of the church. But as the brethren say when they confirm a new member of the church, they say, we say unto you, receive the Holy Ghost. This doesn't mean that now you have it. It means go and receive it. And how do we receive it? We become clean vessels. We learn to have clean hands and a pure heart. And yes, that is a lifetime process. So let's get about it. The idea is to become clean enough that the Holy Ghost can be a constant companion. Notice that the Spirit cannot dwell in unholy tabernacles or unclean tabernacles. So if we are people who continually break commandments, large or small, we are offending the Spirit. Even if we think that these are small things, when we are selfish or impatient or we're yelling or we're unkind or petty or jealous or selfish or impatient. These things offend the spirit. The spirit is pure. And the spirit can help us become fit for the kingdom by purifying us. And it works on both heart, mind, and body because there is a physical component to sanctification that Joseph Smith talked about. And it's recorded in the teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith, some of those writings. McConkie talks about it in Mormon Doctrine that some people say is a process or an event, I would say it's probably both, because I think there is a point at which we are then so purified that our bodies are changed, and elements of corruption that entered the world at the fall of Adam and Eve are burned out of our physical, corporeal bodies. I want that. I want that. I want to become worthy of sanctification, of total cleansing of the inner and outer man and woman. 
So, of course, then he's saying, you know, fornication would get in the way of that, as would other sins. But let's recognize what a great opportunity we have as members of the church to receive the constant companionship of the Holy Ghost. But recognize that when we let other influences take space in our lives, the kind of media we consume, certainly our behavior, our choices, how well we are trying to be diligent about our covenants, that when we are allowing ourselves to cross lines that we know better than to cross or to indulge in behaviors that we know we should change and improve, we are losing time. We're wasting time that could better be used to prepare ourselves for this sanctifying experience of being made pure and clean and ready for the kingdom of God. This is where our heart changes. Our desires change. This is what Alma was talking about when he said, do you feel to sing the song of redeeming love? And if you felt there then, can you feel so now? Or the people of King Benjamin who had no more desire to sin but to do good continually. These are the fruits of sanctification. Okay, then let's see the next verse. That every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor. Our vessel is our body and our spirit because the two of them comprise the soul of mankind. So are we possessing our bodies in a way that allows for sanctification? Or is our body possessing us? And I've talked about this before. Do we come to earth to get a body and the body is the test? Are we in charge of our body or is our body in charge of us? Are we a slave to the natural man so that our desires, appetites, and passions still run the show and drive the bus? That is the opposite of the path towards sanctification. Now, obviously, this is a journey. So if we are still struggling with some things, that doesn't mean we are terrible people. It means we want to continue with that diligent effort and be prayerful and thoughtful and do appropriate seeking and studying, you know, studying it out in our mind, but seeking truth and seeking tools that can help us to gain better mastery of the natural man. Certainly, if there is an addiction, we are going to need help. And there are so many resources now Let's use the right ones, the good ones, the things that are endorsed by the church, things that are obviously leading toward better mastery of the natural man. I want to read just this little section that came from our recent general conference. And I know conference now has been a couple of weeks ago, but can I just throw in here that somebody asked if I would do a little bit of a summary of conference of the things that touched me in conference and I will. So I will be doing that and posting it on Patreon. Thank you for your patience, Patreon subscribers. I am posting things, but they're not rapid necessarily because I have to kind of work them into my schedule along with the weekly podcast. But I'm excited about some of the things that are already ready to post and that are in the mix where they'll be edited soon and I can add them to Patreon. So I do appreciate your patience. They are coming. But let me read from just this recent conference where President Nelson gave the concluding message by video. And maybe maybe you had a similar feeling. I got lots of messages from some of you listeners and some clients or some friends, family, and so on that reached out to me and said like, wow, did the prophet read your book? And, and I have been responding typically that, well, we read the same book. We read the scriptures and we got the same message. So here is the prophet telling us to think celestial to choose glory. Of course, you know that my book, Choosing Glory, talks about telestial law, terrestrial law, and celestial law. 
that also President Oaks spoke about in the general conference. So there was a lot of resonance for that in the conference. And I really, of course, enjoyed that and appreciated those messages. So here's President Nelson about chastity. Thinking celestial will also help you obey the law of chastity. Few things will complicate your life more quickly than violating this divine law. I'm going to repeat that. Few things will complicate your life more quickly than violating this divine law. For those who have made covenants with God, immorality is one of the quickest ways to lose your testimony. Many of the adversary's most relentless temptations involve violations of moral purity. And that's also one I want to repeat. Many of the adversary's most relentless temptations involve violations of moral purity. The power to create life is the one privilege of Godhood that Heavenly Father allows his mortal children to exercise. Thus, God set clear guidelines for the use of this living divine power. Physical intimacy is only for a man and a woman who are married to each other. Much of the world does not believe this. Wow, that's certainly true. We have fewer and fewer people who believe that physical intimacy is only for a man and a woman who are married to each other. Much of the world does not believe this, but public opinion is not the arbiter of truth. I know that stood out to many, many people. I've heard people talk about it, and it's a great statement. Public opinion is not the arbiter of truth. The Lord has declared that no unchaste person will attain the celestial kingdom. So when you make decisions regarding morality, please think celestial. And if you have been unchaste, I plead with you to repent. Come unto Christ and receive his promise of complete forgiveness as you fully repent of your sins. Only the truly penitent are saved. We know this, Alma 42, right? We can have complete forgiveness if we fully repent. We must be fully penitent and not just learn to live a chaste life, but also we need to hate the sin. We need not to euphemize or rationalize or justify sinful behaviors. We need to reject and hate the sin. Not the sinners, but the sin. So this brings me to another question that was submitted that time that I mentioned and that I spoke to a large group of women. Teaching the marriage and chastity lessons, some teachers have diluted the message down so much you don't recognize the lesson or the message. How should we approach the topic of marriage and chastity when so many emotions and feelings surround this topic? That's an excellent question. That there are a lot of emotions and sensitivity around this topic, and because it is one of Satan's best weapons to pull people away from the covenant path, we have a lot of people in the church that have struggled with this and have broken this law. And so we want to be sensitive to that, because this isn't about keeping people out of the kingdom. This is always about how to help people come into the kingdom, to come to Christ and be saved. So I just want to mention a few things about this. Obviously, this is a very huge topic, and I will just mention a few thoughts. Try to know your audience. Try to know your students. Are these your children? 
Or is this a friend or a neighbor who's asking about this? Are these people who have familiarity with the covenant of chastity or the law of chastity? Or are they pretty unfamiliar with it? Have they been taught in ways that are very different, that are more like what the world is saying right now, which is basically that anything goes? So try to understand your audience. It always helps to know as much as possible about the people to whom we are speaking or to whom we're trying to deliver this message. Now, we can't know everything about and everybody. Sometimes we talk to people about some sensitive subjects and we find out we just put our foot in our mouth with somebody who was very sensitive about that. I've certainly done that. I apologize when I've hurt people's feelings or if they have felt misunderstood or mischaracterized by something that I've said. I'm always happy to apologize for that and try to mend the relationship. I don't apologize for the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm not ashamed of it, and I don't apologize for it. But I don't use it to hurt people. So if inadvertently I've hurt somebody and I become aware of that, I do try to make sure that I let them know that it was not my intention to be hurtful, that I want to hear what they have to say and try to understand their perspective. So anyway, we can know our listeners to some extent, perhaps, but we may not know everything about them. And it is a sensitive topic, so sometimes we might tread on sensitive feelings, and we want to be careful about that. But if we can consider some of those various kinds of audience members when we are trying to prepare a lesson on this topic or addressing this topic, that helps. One of my daughters, I may have mentioned this before, but one of my daughters was delivering a Father's Day speech. After she was married, I don't know that she had children yet, or if she did, they were just one or two very young kids. So she was pretty newly married still, and she wanted to just sort of run her ideas past me one time. And so we lived in different states, but we were on the phone talking about it. And she had some beautiful thoughts she was going to share. And I really appreciated what she was doing there. I did offer one thought at the end. I said, do me a favor. And before you get your final message ready, think about somebody who might be listening who grew up without a father, maybe whose father died when they were quite young, or maybe who died recently, or maybe a father who was abusive or a father that ended up divorced from the mother so that they didn't live at home. And they may have had a relationship or they may not have, or the relationship might have been good or bad. Like just try to consider the various audience members that might be listening in the congregation so that you can choose sensitive language as much as possible. That is not to say change your message or apologize for the gospel. That's not the same things. But can you see how two things can be true at the same time? (laughs) We can be firm and bold about the truthfulness of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we can express our love and gratitude for that gospel without being a bull in a china shop. So try to find that place as often as we can, and we'll get better at it if we practice. Always include the principle of repentance, because if we are going to teach the truth, this is a bold message in a world that is as corrupt as this one where pornography is everywhere, immodesty is so extreme, where all kinds of media depict not only immorality or immodesty, but, you know, fornication and cheating and adultery. I mean, all kinds of heinous acts are available for people's consumption all over the place. Try to avoid them. I hope you're all avoiding them, but recognize that our audience is being exposed to these things. Perhaps our own children have been exposed. So always talk about repentance that there is a way back when we have either not known about the principle of chastity or have violated it. One of my favorite speeches on the topic of chastity is Elder Jeffrey R. Holland's speech that was a BYU devotional years ago called Of Souls, Symbols, and Sacraments. 
I know many of you are familiar with that, but if it's been a while or if you're going to teach again or, you know, you're talking to your children, I hope there's a conversation in your homes with growing children about modesty and chastity, then that it's not this big talk that happens just once or twice, but that it's an ongoing conversation about this important topic and this important principle and how essential it is to the fulfillment of God's plan for his children and for their exaltation, to get it right, to understand it and comply with this wonderful principle that brings blessings. So anyway, Elder Holland's speech is a marvel. I quote it all the time, and I think it has application before marriage and inside of marriage, as he talks about active intimacy between a married man and a married woman to each other, married to each other, is so beautiful if it's done correctly, and how much trouble comes when we try to separate the symbolism of that intimate act from its action or from its realization. So if we're not doing it for the right reason and in the right way, that we are really buying into, again, Satan's counterfeits, which is always so tragic. And Satan has brought millions of counterfeits into play when it comes to intimacy and modesty and chastity, all those things. As I was looking up something, I saw this. This is a BYU devotional that I don't think I'd ever read before. I wasn't on campus when it was given. It was in 1987, October 1987, by Ezra Taft Benson called The Law of Chastity. And it was a great talk. And I'm going to read just a couple of things from it. I recognize, said President Benson, that most people fall into sexual sin in a misguided attempt to fulfill basic human needs. That's true. That's why Satan plays on these counterfeits. He uses counterfeits to try to lure us away from the covenant path. Because people want to be close to others. I mean, men want to be close to women. Women want to be close to men. And this is a natural desire that we have. We don't want to demonize it. We don't want to say that, you know, sex is bad. It's really dangerous for kids to grow up hearing that sex is bad. That's not a healthy approach to human sexuality. We want them to understand that this is a great gift. But as we have mentioned before, as President Nelson reminded us in conference, that this is a godlike capacity or characteristic that God has shared with human beings that we can bring forth life through this intimate act. And that is to be treated with such sanctity and such reverence and care. And here Satan is saying like, oh yeah, you know, you need to be close to somebody so it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how this happens or where it happens or with whom it happens. Of course it does. Going on, President Benson said, we all have a need to feel loved and worthwhile. We all seek to have joy and happiness in our lives. Knowing this, Satan often lures people into immorality by playing on their basic needs. He promises pleasure, happiness, and fulfillment. That's the advertising. Oh, this will make everything right. You will feel great. If you indulge inappropriately, in breaking the law of chastity. And so, as President Benson says, but this is, of course, a deception. It's a counterfeit. A little later, he said, do not be misled by Satan's lies. There is no lasting happiness in immorality. Do not be misled by Satan's lies. There is no lasting happiness in immorality. And then I will say this, while I lament with the question giver here, 
that some of our lessons are pretty tough to figure out because they might not even sound like a lesson on chastity, as the questioner is saying. And that makes me really sad because I think when people are so afraid of offending others that they shy away from teaching gospel truth, then they are fearing man more than God. You remember when Joseph Smith was taken to task about the 116 manuscript pages that he gave to Martin Harris. And he was told something that applies in so many situations in life. You should not have feared man more than God. Like that is always a mistake. If we are more afraid of offending our neighbor than we are of offending God, we're doing it wrong. Again, not that we should intentionally offend anybody. And we can be cautious and sensitive around this subject, but that doesn't mean that the primary goal should be to not offend the people listening. The primary goal should be not to offend God and not to apologize for saving gospel principles. Again, if we love people, we want them to have the whole truth, not just part of it. We don't want to water down the gospel of Jesus Christ in such a way that it's not efficacious in bringing us to Christ and bringing us to the possibility and the qualification for exaltation in the celestial kingdom. As Van Elder Oaks so beautifully put, that basically law is love in his speech about law and love, or I think it was love and law. But anyway, wonderful speech. If we love people, we tell them the truth. And God loves us, which is why he does not depart from this principle, because it is a saving principle. Now, I talked a few weeks ago about this, and this extra content is coming about helping our children understand how to have reverence around this topic of intimacy and help them treat it with care and respect. And that's not easy in a world like ours, but I do have a few thoughts on that. So that will be on extra content on Patreon as soon as we can get that done. If you're interested, patreon.com forward slash choosing glory, and you could subscribe at the 10 or $13 level to get extra content But please understand how much I also appreciate the $5 subscribers who are just supporting the podcast. And all of that supports the podcast. I'm so grateful for those of you who are doing that. Thank you very much. Let's jump quickly to chapter 5, verse 2 in 1 Thessalonians. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. So we know this expression. It's also Paul's where he talks that this can come like labor pains, right? In verse Three, for when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. Verse four, but ye, brethren, are not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. Verse five, ye are all the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Verse six, therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. So I think I'm only about a week ahead on this podcast recording. Lost a week when I was out of town to speak for somewhere, but I <laughs> sadly have heard the news that there's been a serious attack in Israel and they are basically at a state of war. Now I'm always kind of keeping an eye on the prophecies regarding the second coming of Christ. And one of them does involve a prolonged war that Israel will be involved with where eventually all nations shall be raised up against Israel. Now, I don't know if this is that war or not, but what Paul is telling us here is to watch. 
Don't sleep like the rest of the world and think, oh, it's just ho-hum, another thing going on in the world. Don't, don't get bent out of shape. And getting bent out of shape isn't useful, but getting prepared for the coming of the Lord is. It is so important that we not be in the dark or children of the night, but children of the light of the day and of the light, and that we know what's going on and we recognize the signs of the times as they appear. I know many of you are interested in and studying those things, and I think it's marvelous. I don't think we should obsess, meaning that's not what really matters, because it's going to happen when it is ordained to happen. What really matters is our portion of that prophecy. In other words, am I prepared? Whether it's when the Savior comes in his glory, or if I get hit by a truck tomorrow, am I prepared for the coming of the Lord or for my meeting with him again? And that is what matters. It's good, though, to be aware that it not overtake us like a thief in the night. We shouldn't be surprised when the Savior comes, although we don't know the day or the hour, and that's okay. We should certainly be able to tell that the leaves are on the fig tree, as the Savior talked about, knowing that the fig tree is the last of the fruit trees to get its leaves. And our prophets have been telling us for quite a while now that the leaves are on the tree. So none of us should be surprised, but mostly we should just be prepared and be working toward that preparation as we move forward every day. And verse 18, have to mention this because it caught my attention. In everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. In everything, give thanks. We had wonderful talks in general conference. I liked all of them. I will highlight a few on Patreon. Gary Saban, Elder Gary Saban, gave a lovely speech, and he said this. This was his fifth point about happiness. You will never be happier than you are grateful. Can I just repeat that? You will never be happier than you are grateful. That's a really important principle, beautifully stated. And then... Just a little later, he asked, or I guess this is a rhetorical statement here, not a question. How our awareness would change if every morning we awoke with only the blessings we were grateful for the night before. (laughs) That is a great statement. How our awareness would change if every morning we awoke with only the blessings we were grateful for the night before. I really thought that was a great comment. And I just think this is such an easy way to increase our happiness. Why do we hesitate to be grateful? Let us cultivate gratitude. There are so many tools that we can use. We've all heard about gratitude journals, about pondering and meditating on our blessings, counting our blessings. That doesn't mean we don't have trouble. It means we can land on the gratitude and know that all of us have much more than we deserve. And yes, Sometimes we have troubles, and they're serious. There was another question that was submitted that I don't want to read exactly because the writer actually asked that it not be read. It just asks that the readers of the questions pray for this person who is unhappy and not really wanting to be alive. Now, I don't think this person was on their brink. I hope they weren't on the brink of doing something to end their life because suicide is not gratitude. God has given us an opportunity to be here in mortality, and it is a gift. It It is a gift. But that doesn't mean it's not hard to carry sometimes. I will say that I know there have been some times 
in my life that I've thought, you know, it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world to pass over to the other side. Well, I still believe that, frankly, because it's not the worst thing in the world. Death is not the real enemy. It's unrepented sin that is the enemy of our souls. So we shouldn't be terrified of death. Nevertheless, our lives are a stewardship and we should care for them because they are precious. They are meant to give us an opportunity to be like God and we should not dispose of it nor treat it carelessly. Think about how gratitude can help. It may sound like too simple a fix, but it's not. Ultimately, when we focus on the things for which we're grateful, we do become happier. We've also talked about the effect of expectations on happiness. There's a formula that some use. H equals R minus E. Happiness is reality minus expectations. When our expectations have been unrealistic, it can really diminish our happiness. I talked to someone the other day who was saying, well, I just really hate being out of control. And I'm like, wow, there's a mistaken expectation. Life isn't in our control. Our choices are in our control, and that's it. But all the other choices people make are not in our control, and nor are the elements or the weather or you know the effects of aging or accident or illness or lots of other challenges that we have in this life. Those are not in our control. So if we're seeking to be in control, we're going to be unhappy because life isn't going to be in our control. So what are our expectations? Is there something there that can be adjusted? I know some people get devastated because their children do not accept the gospel, or when they grow, they depart from the gospel, or maybe a spouse does that, or even parents. Yes, those can be temporarily heartbreaking, but I hope that the weeping endures for a night and joy cometh in the morning, because we don't have to grieve forever, because we have a Savior, Jesus Christ, through whom all things will be made right. He won't interfere with agency, but neither will he allow us to end with a sad ending. His ending is a happy ending. And we can count on that. So again, you know, where is our expectation? Do we expect that in this life all the threads will be wrapped up into a tidy bow? No, they won't. The probationary state extends throughout the spirit world and throughout the millennium until the end of the millennium. And God is still doing his work with people and he is making sure that everybody has a full opportunity to exercise their agency with their eyes wide open. So let us not let our expectations destroy our happiness. Let us be grateful for the goodness of a God who guarantees that happy ending. Brothers and sisters, life is precious. And if we're not feeling it, talk to somebody. Please talk to somebody that you can trust. Someone who loves you and who loves God. Don't mess with other people on this subject. It's too important. But find a path toward increased happiness and less pain. Now, you know me. I am not one to advocate denial or repression. So I'm not saying to ignore those painful things that are going on in your life. Process them. Process them. Go back and listen to my podcast last year on the Psalms because I talk about catharsis and some of the tools to help us alleviate our burdens in life emotionally and to process them through so that we can move forward with fewer cares, with fewer pressures emotionally in our system. We can learn these good tools. They are part of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't despair. Find the tools, use them. I should quickly mention in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 
that Paul makes this familiar statement that the day of Christ is at hand. That one's not the most familiar one. <laughs> That's verse 2. Verse 3 has the familiar statement, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first. This is one of our most often used or cited verses on the apostasy. The Catholic Church seems not to have gotten the message, and this is not a disrespect toward Catholics themselves, because there are some really wonderful believing people in that church. But they don't have the whole truth. It's like they skipped this part, and they feel like there was no apostasy. They claim authority through Peter, the apostle of Christ, that they consider to be the first pope. And they see a continuation of authority. I've talked about this before. The history of the papacy is incredibly colorful (laughs) in not such a glorious way because there were a lot of scoundrels who took their turn being pope. And one time it was a woman and one time it was auction off to the highest bidder. And anyway, there's all kinds of scandal and terrible behavior in that history. Probably some good men in there too, I suppose. But anyway, it's not a path through which the power of God could have come through unsullied. Now, we don't expect that our prophets are perfect, but we do expect that they are not filled with vice, that they are not sinners. We're all sinners, right? But what I mean is that they're not rebellious and they're not just ignoring things that they need to do to improve and that they are not evil men or God would not let them function in that capacity. And that doesn't seem to have been true in the history of the papacy, as I said. It's interesting to look that up if you ever have the interest. So there was a falling away first, and that required the restoration that came in 1820 or began in 1820 in a grove of trees with Joseph Smith. And I'm so grateful for that restoration. There had to be a falling away first. And there was a time of such great darkness in the world that it's hard to believe that people think that the light of God was on the planet throughout all those dark ages and other really difficult times where there was hardly any advance in technology or development for humankind. And that is one thing that I think is so beautiful about the restoration is that it wasn't just a restoration to the people who would join the church, but it was a restoration of light to the planet. And while people can always turn away from light, there are many who have been blessed by the increase of light that has come to the earth since the appearance of the Father and the Son to Joseph Smith in upstate New York. So grateful for being one of the direct beneficiaries of that powerful restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Grateful every day to be born in this dispensation. And now let's talk a little bit more about flattering words. This is our sophistry segment for the day, right? (laughs) Okay, so there was an interesting article that I saw in Meridian Magazine back in December of 2020 by a man named Gary Lawrence called Flattery Will Get Them Everywhere. So I'm just quoting a few things that he said that I thought were good. He said, it begins subtly. He's talking about flattery, or we could say sophistry, because really there's a lot of overlap. It's okay to be selfish. It's okay to be lustful. It's okay to be lazy. Don't worry. No problem. It's not your fault. Do what you want. We'll all end up in heaven anyway. And this is one of the chief messages of flattery is that there are no consequences. Notice that flattering words is a phrase that's used like 15 times in the Book of Mormon. And we see all of the antichrists and others who are trying to harm the church use 
flattering words. We see that again and again. Nephi warned about this, and he doesn't use the word flattery, but remember we've mentioned this even recently about 2 Nephi 28 that says, there shall be many that shall say, eat, drink, be merry, nevertheless fear God. He will just find committing a little sin. Yea, lie a little, take the advantage of one because of his words, dig a pit for the neighbor. There is no harm in this. That's the flattering phrase. There's no harm in this. There's no consequence. And if do all these things for tomorrow we die. And if it so be that we are guilty, God will beat us with a few stripes, some very minimal consequence. And at last we shall be saved in the kingdom of God. Those are flattering words. We're hearing them all over the place. I mentioned this a lot, that people are getting the idea that everybody's going to heaven. Everybody's going to heaven. It doesn't matter. God loves everybody. So we're all going to heaven. Those are flattering words. They're not true. Moroni prophesied that Quote, there shall be many who will say, do this or do that, and it mattereth not. There it is again. For the Lord will uphold such at the last day. Korahor taught that every man fared in his life, in this life, according to the management of the creature. Therefore, every man prospered according to his genius, and every man conquered according to his strength, and whatsoever a man did was no crime. There it is again. There's no such thing as sin. Everybody is fine. Doing what they want to do is exactly the right thing to do. Nehor implied that there would be no consequences to action, no matter number or severity of sin. He also testified that all mankind should be saved at the last day. There it is again. And they need not fear nor tremble. And all men should have eternal life. Notice that all of these scenarios violate justice, that punishments must fit the crime and rewards must equal the deed. That's what's being violated here. Justice would say that punishments fit crimes and rewards have to equal the deed that was done. And these stories or these messages violate justice. False promises and carnally pleasing doctrines provide excuses for riotous and lascivious living. Punishment, meh, can be ignored or at most paid for with a few stripes. And then Helaman, or third Nephi actually in the book of Helaman warns, but behold, if a man come among you and shall say, do this and there is no iniquity, do that and ye shall not suffer, ye will receive him and say he is a prophet. In other words, this actually works a lot for these flattering words, these sophists, because people kind of lap it up. Oh my goodness, I can do what I want and get away with it. That sounds great. Villains throughout history provided an excuse coupled with a guarantee. They promised a consequence-free existence. They promised someone else will pay. And later on in this article, it says, thus we hear promises that now government should eliminate student debt, provide jobs, become the single payer for health care, issue forgivable loans, provide free education, and provide housing. That is flattery today. And it all smacks of the adversary's plan. Some of these issues are complex, so please don't think I'm offering like this simple solution there are some things that it can be helpful for government to become involved in, but it's true that our attitude today is that we want to have that equality of outcome. Everybody should have exactly the same thing, no matter what the input is. While it's not terrible for rich nations to take care of people at some level so that they don't sink beyond a certain point, we have taken that to an extreme where we actually reward idleness in some cases or we reward poor life decisions and act as if it's not your job to take care of yourself. It's the government's job. And how does the government do it? By taxing people who maybe have made better decisions. Maybe not all of them, 
but maybe some people who are living a little bit more balanced life and they can take care of themselves and then they take that and they use that, not necessarily with the consent of the text, to provide certain programs that the text may not agree with, like canceling all debt or providing free lots of things or allowing people to be supported in idleness when they have the capacity to work. Those are similarly flattering words of today. And look how much it can influence people in the way that they respond or vote in elections. If somebody is saying, yes, a chicken in every pot, you know, a car in every garage, all loans forgiven, all this given, you know, jobs are guaranteed, this is guaranteed, don't worry about it, it'll be provided. And we're, you know, it's it's not working. <laughs> So anyway, some ways that flattering words can separate consequences from action. They can agitate for equal outcomes rather than equal opportunities. Remember, it was Satan's plan that not one should fail. That's an equal outcome. And that was not the plan of God that was enacted by the Savior. The plan of God is equal opportunity. Everybody is invited to come unto Christ and be saved. But there are some conditions that when met can provide that great blessing. Another problem to reward the laborer and the lazy equally, to live without the fear of being accountable, to eliminate incentives, to crush the idea of personal responsibility. Why work if goodies are free and all loans are forgivable? So this, in sum, destroys the path to exaltation. So that's the end of my quote from that article, which I thought was kind of interesting. Then there was another article from a blog called Thus We See, and it was an article called Flattering Word, meaning you are enough. Now, this is another interesting thought that I thought was worth sharing. Now, you have to be careful with this one because, of course, we're all children of God and we have intrinsic worth. We are enough in that way. And I work with people who've been told in their lives from the beginning that they were not enough or in certain relationships. Maybe they were okay when they were young and then they marry somebody who tells them that they're not enough, they're inadequate, they're flawed. That's terribly damaging stuff. And we want to reverse those messages. And we don't want to send them to young children or to anybody. That kind of criticism and demeaning language is incredibly destructive. Don't go there. But if it has happened to us, we want to capture the truth, which is that each of us has intrinsic and unlimited worth as God's children. And we are no better or no worse than the next guy. Nevertheless, in this article, this blog, the author Brad McBride, this is October of 2021, says regarding the popular standalone usage of the phrase, every time someone says or writes the words, you are enough, there should be an asterisk. And he puts, you are enough, and puts an asterisk there. And then he says, you are perfect just the way you are, and puts an asterisk there. So what's his point? If you read the talks of the brethren or watch their videos carefully, you will notice there's always an implicit asterisk coming up. And here it is, in Christ. That's a nice point, that we are enough in Christ. This simple addition can turn those flattering words into words of salvation. By themselves, those words might make us feel good about ourselves and where we are, which may be true or false, but they are merely flattery. Add the asterisk and you suddenly have divine purpose and essential eternal truth, which brings hope. 
He quotes Elder Devin Cornish, who said, what we cannot do is rationalize rather than repent. It will not work to justify ourselves in our sins by saying, God knows it's just too hard for me, so he accepts me like I am. None of us will ever be good enough, save through the merits and mercy of Jesus Christ. But because God respects our agency, we also cannot be saved without our trying. Sister Jennifer Kieran taught right after saying, you are enough, that... Quote, he loves you just the way you are, right here, right now, in all your beautiful messiness. But he also loves you enough not to let you stay the way you are right here, right now. He has much bigger plans for you. So we could change it, the author suggests, to you are enough in Christ. I am enough in Christ. We are enough in Christ. I like that. Another just quick thought that is a very common kind of sophistry and flattering words. And that is that, and well, they don't say it this way because that wouldn't be very sophisticated or subtle. But the idea that we are smarter than God, that knowing what is right for ourselves is somehow superior to what God has decreed is right for us. And these are all the voices that tell us things like, you get to choose for yourself, you know, how to keep your covenants. You get to choose for yourself how to, what you think modesty is, or it's nobody's business how you dress, or it's nobody's business how you wear your garments. It's nobody's business how we treat the Sabbath day or what we, yeah, it is God's business because he created us and he knows what brings ultimate happiness. And he loves us too much not to tell us. He loves us too much to leave us where we are. So that is an implication there that we should recognize when we're hearing all that stuff about decide for yourself or you have the right to modify or adjust all of these things to your own preferences rather than God's stated commandments, that's sophistry. Those are flattering words. Another one that's very common these days is this idea that, again, they wouldn't state it this baldly or bluntly because it would tip their hand. But the idea that we're kinder than God that we're more loving than God, that God and some of his prophets are too harsh. They're too harsh. They're not kind enough. And they get hammered for this all the time. Now, this really kind of resonated with another recent talk that I enjoyed in conference about face blindness. Do you remember that speech? The name of that talk was, Sir, We Would Like to See Jesus by Elder Robert M. Daines. That was another Saturday morning talk that was really nice where he talked about how some people get face blind because of damage to the brain and they can't see people for who they are and how he had a kind of face blindness about his mother who was the rule giver, the law giver or whatever, but she who must be obeyed. But then he realized it was all out of love. Anyway, he talks about how we can become face blind to God and Christ, that we can look at them, but not really see how loving they are. And I think this is so much what I want to say about this idea that we are kinder than God, because well, I often refer to that teaching of Christ in the New Testament during his ministry, where he says, which of you, if your child asks a piece of bread, will give them a stone or a fish, a serpent? And then he says, if you being evil, but he really means if you being human, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more does God know? So sometimes when people talk about the whole LGBT stuff, or, you know, that we don't let homosexual couples get sealed in the temple, 
that we don't countenance other relationships outside of marriage between a man and a woman, that we're not being kind, that we're not being loving enough. And I think that that is a kind of face blindness. I think how foolish that we think we can be kinder than God. So Outer Danes talked about how he really made a study of the Gospels in the New Testament to find Christ's love for him. And as he read some of these stories, he said, My heart leapt in loving recognition, and I began to feel that he might love me. As President Nelson taught, the more you learn about the Savior, the easier it will be to trust in his mercy, his infinite love, and the more you will trust and love your Heavenly Father. I think that's so important. I think it's an answer to the flattering words of the sophists in our world who make it sound like we are more loving when we want to contest or argue against the principles of the gospel of Jesus Christ, God's ordained family relationship. And we're acting like we're nicer than God. We can love our LGBTQ plus whatever individuals or neighbors or family members, but somehow we don't trust that God loves them even more. We don't trust that God has a plan for every one of his children, but that the path toward exaltation is the same. But he will make sure everybody has a fair chance. Let's trust him. I do think that this business of a loving God and our understanding of a loving God and perfectly loving God and Christ is so incredibly important. I've said for years now that if we really understood how much God loves his children, how much he loves each of us, we would suffer a lot less in this life. We would not worry about these things that we think are unfair or not working out or whatever because we would trust that there is a loving plan. I've mentioned that I listen to Christian, you know, gospel music. Sometimes I have a great playlist that my daughter shared with me. One of my daughters shared with me called her Jesus music, and I really love it. And I've added to it here and there. Anyway, this one is a song by Corey Asbury called Reckless Love. And some of the words go like this. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. I love that phrase, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. Now, why is it reckless? Because God's not reckless. I'm not trying to imply that. What I'm trying to say is that how amazing is this love of this perfect God who is our Father and who has sent us a Savior who loves us in exactly the same way, that loves even people as nuts as we are, as flawed as we are, as imperfect and combative and rebellious and slow to hearken and quick to disobey as we are. We are messy in our lives and we are clumsy in our lives. And he nevertheless loves us in this overwhelming, never-ending way. One of the lines goes on, I couldn't earn it. I don't deserve it. Still, you give yourself away. And of course, that reminds me of our beautiful hymn, I Stand All Amazed. I think this is the second verse. I marvel that he would descend from his throne divine to rescue a soul so rebellious and proud as mine, that he should extend his great love unto such as I, sufficient to own, to redeem, and to justify. 
Oh, it is wonderful that he should care for me enough to die for me. Oh, it is wonderful, wonderful to me. We can accept that love in its fullness and its entirety, and we can receive the joy and the peace that comes with it if we will choose glory, if we will, as the prophet invites, think celestial, if we will build Zion to prepare for the second coming of Christ. You can almost taste it, brothers and sisters. As ever, thanks to my husband, Chris Anderson, and Doug Larson of Point Digital. Take care. <laughs>